0: Hello, and thanks for your company here on Search for Truth, your Bible teaching programme with Brian Johnston. It's uh, talk number seven today in this series of ten programmes. Now, I remind you that they're all about the model for Christian church life laid out for us in the New Testament. In this series, we're seeking to discover what God intended when New Testament Christian disciples began collective service for God. In today's talk, we're going to see from the Bible how important it is that we do things God's way and not try to use our own wisdom, In, if I can say in inverted commas. Um, and now, here's Brian to tell us more.
1: Thanks. Perhaps we'll begin with a question. Have you ever doubted the sovereignty of God, the fact that he's in control? The Philistines put the idea to the test, they were the Old Testament enemy of God's people who'd captured the Ark of the Covenant when it had been wrongly removed from its sanctuary in God's house, the tabernacle, and taken into battle by the Israelites. They'd lost all perspective at this point and were treating this sacred box as if it were like the idol of one of the false gods of the surrounding nations. However, when the Philistines, who had captured it, placed it in the house of their god, Dagon, his image lay smashed before it in the morning. Wherever it visited throughout the five cities of the Philistine lords, disaster and mayhem followed. Finally, they held a committee meeting to decide to send the Ark back to the Israelites on a cart or wagon. But to make sure that everything that had happened to them since its arrival wasn't just some strange string of coincidences, they agreed to stack the odds against the Ark making it back. They selected oxen that had never previously borne a yoke, in addition, the oxen had recently calved. Without guidance, they were unlikely to head directly into Israelite territory. Natural instinct would be expected to draw them back to their calves. However, as it turned out, the oxen pulled the wagon directly back to Israelite territory, to Beth in fact, confirming miraculously to the Philistines that the hand of God had been in all that had happened. When the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh saw the ark returning, 1 Samuel chapter 6 tells us they rejoiced to see it. Beth Shemesh was a Levite city and so the ark of God would be especially meaningful to them. After that initial joy at Beth Shemesh, we read that during the days while Saul was king, it was simply left in Kiriath-Jerim. In First Chronicles chapter 13 and verse 3, we read that Israel didn't seek out the ark during all the days of Saul. It just didn't seem to figure in Saul's plans or thinking. What a contrast with the king who succeeded Saul. David, his successor, was a man after God's own heart. In other words, he cared for the things God cared for. When he came to the throne, After capturing Jerusalem, David made it a priority to fetch the ark up from the fields of the woods, where Psalm 132 indicates it had lain throughout the reign of Saul. David's first move in removing the ark to Jerusalem, however, was to prove to be a false one, as recorded in 2 Samuel 6. Perhaps influenced by what the Philistines had done, David also set the ark on a wagon pulled by oxen, They hadn't gone far before the oxen stumbled and someone called Uzzah stuck out his hand to steady the ark. For doing what had long ago been forbidden, even to the Levites, for touching the sacred chest that symbolised the presence of God, Uzzah was struck down dead by God. We don't know all that lay behind this. Uzzah was one of the family that had given shelter to the ark. Perhaps familiarity had bred contempt, and it had come to be for him just that old box that stood in the corner of the house. What we do know is that David caused the journey to be aborted, and the ark was diverted into the house of a man called obed David might be surprised, confused, displeased and disappointed, but two clear commands of God's word had been broken. God had clearly said in the days of Moses that not even the Levites were to touch the ark, it was to be carried by staves or poles on their shoulders. Wagons could be used for transporting other tabernacle objects but not for the ark of God. But the strange thing is that the Philistines appeared to have got away with this. Surely the lesson for us is obvious, that the people of God, those to whom he has revealed his will, may not do as others do. Greater privilege and understanding brings greater responsibility. David did learn his lesson and after seeing that God had blessed the family of Obed-Edom where the ark was, 1 Chronicles 15 tells us how David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring the ark there, carried this time by the Levites, which was now in agreement with God's written instructions of 500 years earlier. You ask, do details matter to God? This incident has been recorded in the Bible record to serve as our answer. And that answer is a resounding yes. Details do matter to God. God's actions then reveal what remains his attitude now. That story underlines for us the importance of following God's word exactly and carefully, above all things, in things relating to God's house. The tabernacle, where the ark was housed, was used by Israel in the wilderness and after they entered the land of Canaan. Later, it was replaced by a more permanent structure, the temple. It was David, of whom we've been thinking, who first wanted God to have a temple, but it was Solomon, his son, who was instrumental in building it. Once again, how this all came about is instructive for us. Sometime after David had brought the ark to Jerusalem, and after David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. David's concern was a very worthy one. He was moved by the homelessness of God on this earth. He saw with painful clarity how incongruous it was that he should have a nice place to live when God had no place at all. But if you read further in that chapter, for we've just read the first two verses, if we were to read further we'd find God corrects his prophet. It could never be that the house built for God would be the product of David's own mind or any human mind. God's house if it's to be God's house truly, must be to God's design. It must be exclusively from the mind of God, faithfully communicated to the builders and acted upon with accuracy. True enough, David later recounted what did eventually happen. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. You'll find that in First Chronicles 28 verse 19. Not only that, but David was not even allowed to be the builder. God told David that his son Solomon would be the one to build it. It wouldn't be David, despite him being the one with the motivation. No, it wouldn't be David because he was a man of blood, probably not exclusively referring to all the wars he'd engaged in, but possibly also referring to the blood of Uriah, which he'd spilled so as to obtain that man's wife. And Solomon did indeed build God's house. It was a magnificent temple, constructed fully in compliance with God's building pattern, which had been communicated by God to Solomon's father, David. And so we come to read in 1 Kings 6 and verse 7, When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. That's an interesting detail we find there about the actual construction process. All the stone was cut and prepared at the quarry before transportation to the actual temple site. Then at the site, the stones were added together and built into the house. I remember visiting this site at Jerusalem. The guide took us to a quarry that was underground and explained that it was thought that stones from this quarry had found their place in Solomon's temple. Due to the quarry being underground, the Bible verse could be satisfied that no sound was heard from the quarrying and shaping processes. As we exited from the quarry, you could see over to what is believed to have been the place where the cross of Jesus stood. I enjoyed the thought then that Christian believers today are living stones, quarried at Calvary, shaped by God for a place in God's house, but more on that later in the series. So far, In our brief history of God's house down through the ages, we've observed how the desire God first expressed to Jacob was given effect to in the time of Moses in terms of the tabernacle, and later in the time of Solomon in terms of the permanent temple structure located at Jerusalem. In overall terms, it's interesting, but sad, to see a feature of the human response to this great desire of God's heart. I'm referring to how the house of God in Old Testament times suffered a period of decline and dormancy, and only after this was it restored. There was the glorious beginning in the desert, so graphically recounted in Exodus chapter 40, which proclaims repeatedly Moses' obedience and emphasises the glory of God crowning the completed tabernacle house. A good beginning. Sadly, this was not maintained throughout the times of the judges. There was revival in relation to the central theme of God's heart, as we saw in the days of David, leading to Solomon building the temple. But then once again, in the process of time, decline set in. There was deterioration because of idolatry during the time of the kings of Israel and Judah, until it ceased to function with the captivity to Babylon. However, in the mercy of God there was restoration, by a remnant, by a fraction of the people, under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, which was about five centuries before the coming of Christ.
0: as usual, I remind you that with this series of talks, there's a transcript booklet containing all of them, and it's free, so if you'd like one or more, please tell us. I'm about to give you our contact details, so get your pen and paper to hand, because here's our postal and our email address. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester LE5 6LN UK. I'll tell you that again. Search for Truth. Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, UK. And our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now there's a number of ways you can access the many booklets and uh, audio repeats for different subjects and studies which we've previously presented on Search for Truth, and you can enjoy these at your leisure. Each week I'll remind you of different ways to obtain them, but... First, for instance, by looking at www.searchfortruth.org.uk, you'll find our church's main website. And there you can download some actual programmes and the booklets, as well as accessing other helpful material. Also, uh, look out for Search for Truth on twr360.org. We're excited that this will give you yet another excellent way of accessing again what you first heard here on air. That's twr360.org. So that's all we have for now, but thanks once again for being with us. Next week, Brian's called the talk A Major Transition. So to learn what that is, you'll need to tune in, and I hope you can join us. Until then, very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, studio technician David, our singers, and me, John. So goodbye, and may God richly bless you.